Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. I'm Teresa. And here we are. It's the epic conclusion. We have finally made it through all of Midnight Mass last episode titled of course obviously revelation i can't believe it's already done (laughs) i know i know only seven episodes it did take us a bit to get through it but we got to fully appreciate each episode yeah yeah well and you know like schedules and stuff yeah (laughs) for real and like this series came out like beginning of 2021 so it was during the time when we're still like really locked down and yeah so everybody was looking for bingeable stuff but i think this is a show where if you can like sit with yourself in between the episodes it's enriching yeah i kind of liked having space between Mm -hmm. them i mean like there's certainly an argument for binging something but there's so much to talk about and think about with this show that I liked having the space. I even, funny enough, had some like wild theories like about some of the prior episodes that I almost like sent you frantic texts, but I always had them when I was driving to work. (laughs) I was like, oh, but what if, you know, like with some time away, like with some of the earlier, like stuff we learned in the earlier episodes. So I definitely think uh, a little bit of space in a, a watch through of this one is helpful. Yeah, for sure. So one thing that we neglected to talk about when we were covering episode six is the title of the episode, which is Acts of the Apostles. So being our resident um, person who is in parochial school, can you give us a little bit of background on the Acts books? Yeah, so the Acts of the Apostles is the book of the Bible that comes immediately after all of the Gospels, Mm -hmm. and it takes place after Jesus's ascension into heaven. And it's sort of like the what's next for the apostles. So Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And his followers have witnessed all of this. What do they do with this information? What is next in terms of spreading the gospel, spreading the story of Jesus to the world? So Acts of the Apostles is really kind of the foundation for early Christianity. Mm. It's the start of those people who would form the early church sort of going out spreading the word of jesus experiencing pentecost which was the gift of the holy spirit and then moving on from there oh okay so it's quite literal in terms of the episode like episode six is literally like after the resurrection of the people on the island and then what's next exactly yeah and we have all these resurrections all these miracles and then it's like all right y'all are being essentially Per the plan that goes completely awry, y'all are being deputized to now go out and be the army of God or spread the new covenant or whatever, you know, whatever language we're using from the show. This is about sort of empowering the people who are going to go spread this word. And of course, it all goes completely to hell but <laughs> yeah because really what the what father paul's plan was was to have people make the choice because he tells them at the beginning of that episode you have a choice right as to whether or not you want to become part of what he calls in episode five god's army but it starts on turning people who choose it into apostles and then eventually it turns into chaos and then a bunch of folks who had no intention of being apostles are like 
turned. So the Acts of the Apostles turned into the the chaos yeah. of the apostles. Yeah, the chaos of the apostles. Exactly, exactly. I do want to come back to that, the whole idea of like having a choice or not, because mm-hmm. we've been talking a lot both in this series and in some of our other conversations with the ghoul friends on their podcast about vampirism and consent, Mm -hmm. both in the prior episode and in this episode, we see a couple of different examples of people engaging or not with consent and Mm -hmm. and vampirism. So I definitely want to make sure we hit on that at some point. For sure. Keeping with the title of the episode, and this one is obviously called Revelation, which like kind of on the nose, last book of the Bible, last episode of this series. Can you speak a little bit to the title? Yeah, so Revelation is the final book of the Bible. Final episode, final book of the Bible. And of course, everybody kind of knows Revelation shorthand as being like, it's about the end of the world. Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Freaky creatures. Uh, It's where we get all of our like wild Christian imagery of hell. Um, A lot of things actually that are sort of associated with hell in part because of like art and imagery and music that aren't necessarily direct ties you know things like you have the four horsemen and 666 being like the mark of the beast and all this stuff a lot of what we sort of think of as imagery from revelation has less to do with what's literally in the bible and more to do with people's interpretation and putting sort of modern um, superstitions and fears and anxieties of the time onto those things and then that being passed down and becoming more tradition rather than literalism from the Bible. So the interesting thing about Revelation is the name originally was Apocalypsis because of the Greek. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Bible was likely first written in Greek. Well, the first sort of surviving version of the New Testament would have been written to Greek and then translated into Latin. And so it was Apocalypsis, Mm -hmm. which again, like we get into sort of like this interesting like interpretation versus reality thing. People are like, it's about the apocalypse and like kind of, but actually Apocalypsis in ancient Greek means a revelation or an unveiling. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily talking about a literal apocalypse, but more about kind of a spiritual revolution or an unveiling of some kind of truth, Mm -hmm. some kind of like sacred knowledge. Which is perfect for this episode. Yeah. um, It's definitely revelatory for most of our main cast of characters. They're both learning from one another and also unveiling within themselves like known truths or like things that they didn't want to admit to that they finally become comfortable with or allow themselves to kind of like sit in. um, Or have no choice but to reckon with. Yes, exactly. They're forced to because there's like an exploding time limit on this. Like. They only have until sunrise, which we'll get to. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about the very first scene in this episode, which is Mildred awakening. She's been attacked by the angel. The angel turns her. She is the only other person that we see the angel turn. It attacks other people. Yeah. It only turns Mildred and Father Paul, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I do too. But Mildred wakes up and she walks into the church and she talks to Father Paul. And the very first thing that Father Paul says is, did it hurt you? And she says, yes. And 
I thought it was such a reflection of the entire series is that of all of the questions Father Paul could ask her, it's that, like, did it hurt you? And Father Paul knows he's experienced this already. He knows that it's painful. It's not like a gentle process. He knows that it hurts, but he still asks her if it hurt her. And that is the thing that bothers him the most of all of the things that have happened in this entire series, all the people who have died. It bothers him most that Mildred was hurt. Yeah. And we soon learn that Mildred is actually at the center of all of this, Mm -hmm. that the entire reason that any of this is happening is because of his love for her and his care for her. And I think that that is very interesting, too. You know, we know that Father Paul and the angel are communicating in some way and that the angel knew, however painful it was, this person is not. Because we've seen the angel kill and eat many, many people. And cats. And cats. Yes. (laughs) Yes. All the poor kitties. Yeah, we've seen the angel kill and eat many, many people. And I also think it's interesting, hearkening back to the prior episode, When Mildred shoots Father Paul, the assumption is the angel is attacking her and sweeping her off because it's angry that she's harmed Father Paul. I wonder if it is actually the angel knows that because she shot Father Paul, everybody else is going to come at her and it knows that she is to be protected and preserved. Mm -hmm. And probably also the thoughts that Father Paul has in that moment is that protect Mildred. Yeah. And the angel can communicate through Father Paul, even like as rudimentary as like thoughts or images or whatever. So it knows like, yeah, that's Father Paul's plan. But let's talk about that a little bit. Father Paul, this entire series has been waxing poetic about changing the world and army of God and doing all of these big, great things to the world and spreading the message and all this stuff. And in this episode, we find out that was an afterthought. Yeah. Although he talked a big game and brought the angel back to the island, it had nothing to do with that initially. Really, the only thing he wanted to do is start all over again with Mildred and Sarah, which let's uh, give Yay. you some gold stars. I was right. <laughs> yeah, Juliet so was totally happy. right about Sarah being Mildred and Father Paul's daughter. I thought we were going to have to go this whole series and I was just going to have to live with my theory <laughs> and just hold it in my heart and in my head canon. But I was right. Yay. So I totally didn't realize it the first time. And then when I when we got to the end, I was like, man, they even look alike. Like Hamish Link- Linklater <laughs> and Annabeth Gish even look very similar. Yeah. Like they both have very dark hair. Their features are similar. Like it's kind of clear when you get to that point. Like, yeah, that's definitely yeah. her dad. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, that's basically the entire reason he did all of this. And he even says he like lied and begged and bartered to get the angel back to the island. Which I find fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And... It was simply because he wanted to, he was a coward. He'd been a coward his entire life. And he got this chance to do it all over again. And he's like, the one thing I want to do, I don't want to travel the world or, you know, do anything by myself. The one thing I want to do is go and give this same gift to the woman that I love and redo it all with her 
and do the thing I couldn't do all those years ago, which was step down off the altar, step down away from the pulpit and tell her I love you and, you know, throw away my priesthood and all that stuff. And he said that all he wanted was for her to ask him to do that. And he would have done it in a heartbeat. And she was like, I would never have done that to you. Yeah. I would never have asked you to do that. Yeah. And ruin four people's lives. Yeah. Exactly. Which I thought was funny that she referenced it as ruining their lives. It yeah. w- it wasn't like I wouldn't have left my husband and left the person that Sarah thought was her father. It was that she thought that it would ruin their lives to yeah. do that. So very powerful that Father Paul risked all of these things and Mildred was like, it would have ruined our lives to do that. Yeah. So they were definitely on very different... Uh, Which I love. Yeah. I love that she was like, no, that would have been a bad choice because I think so often in media we see, you know, especially with stories of sort of like forbidden love, like everybody's on board and damn the consequences. Mm -hmm. And it's really refreshing to kind of see someone say like, no, actually, as romantic as this might be, there are more people involved. And this is actually not the best choice. Totally. One of the other things in the show that I think is really It's nice in all of Mike Flanagan's stuff, like including the other shows of his that I've watched in some of his movies, but he makes the apologies between people very real. Yeah. Not so much like a, we're going to sit down and I'm going to say, I'm sorry, or like some touching moment. But one of the things that happens after this conversation between Father Paul and Mildred is Aaron, Dr. Sarah, Lisa, Warren... And Mrs. Flynn and Sheriff Hassan are all in Aaron's home. And they're trapped there because they can see the other vampires are kind of running around dragging people out of the house. So they're kind of like scrambling, trying to figure out what's going to happen. Well, Sturge and Bev Keen find that they're all there. They know that they're there and they're like, okay, we're going to pull you guys out of here. So Mrs. Flynn's apology to Aaron isn't, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Like you were right about Riley. It's you take the kids and get them to safety. I would have a word with Bev Keen. Which I love. <laughs> it was totally a Mrs. Weasley moment, like in the last, I know you haven't seen it, but one of the last Harry Potter movies, like Mrs. Weasley goes toe to toe with Bellatrix Lestrange and she's like, she says, not my daughter, you bitch. And everybody in the theater was like, yeah, like, because <laughs> Mrs. Weasley is like such a cool, fierce mother figure, but like Mrs. Flynn being that like fierce mother figure and she didn't say i'm sorry or have like a moment but she was like i think in trusting aaron with her own child her last child and really like the future of the island or the survival of the island in general she says you go with them i will delay bev and sturge so i thought that was a really beautiful and sort of um i think they both understood like mrs flynn was like this is me saying you are right. And yeah. Aaron recognizing this is a huge amount of responsibility. And I absolutely will do this for you. Because it's also what Riley wanted. Right. So right. what did you think about that scene? I really loved it. I loved seeing Annie Flynn kind of like the twists and turns of her in these past couple of episodes. She's yet another character. And I've said this about Ed Flynn too, Riley and Warren's dad, that it would be so easy to make the parent characters very one-dimensional and they do such a good job of making them very complicated people with complicated feelings. Mm -hmm. And we see that from Annie over the course of these past two episodes, especially in that scene, we see her being afraid, being unsure and yet 
able to trust and to step up and to confront Bev. And her conversation with Bev was just amazing. Yeah. I go back and forth about this, and I would be curious to know your thoughts about this. So we get a lot in that scene and in a couple of other scenes, a lot of context to Bev from people who have obviously known her her entire life. You know, like Mm -hmm. you get a lot of kind of things we as viewers already suspected, like, Bev has always thought she was better than other people. And it's obviously kind of a self-preservation thing. Did you like the way that we know all of this about Bev, but we don't know the sort of whole of her, like her background? Or do you like want to know? Because I feel like on the one hand, like it's great as a villain to just be like, yeah, she's evil. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I'm kind of asking myself, like what happened to Bev Keen? Like, what was it in her upbringing or was there a traumatic event or did she have like a horrible child? Like, what was it that made her act this way? Because it's very obvious that her behavior comes from some kind of self-preservation. But what was the thing she was preserving herself from? Mike Flanagan, if you're listening, I think Juliet's asking for a Bev Keen prequel series. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Or just one episode, (laughs) maybe. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, it's easy to make a villain one-sided. Like, we never feel anything but hate for Bev Keen. Like, from the very first moment she steps on screen. I mean, in the second episode, she poisons a dog. Right. An innocent dog that's done nothing wrong. And you're like, that immediately puts a target on her back. But the challenge of a villain is making them relatable. You know, like, I don't feel like Bev's relatable. Like, maybe she's relatable in all of the worst ways. But it's like the Thanos thing. Like, you know, like, well, at the end, Thanos makes a good point. Yeah. So you kind of like are stuck in between, like, do you do bad things for good reasons? Or do you think that this person is evil? And ultimately, we don't really get like that dichotomy from Bev. So I agree with you. We do know so much about her, but it's all in like terrible, bad context. Yeah. You know, the only times I felt sympathy for Bev is there were a couple of moments, and I I mentioned these in the episodes that they came in, like very early on, where you could tell that like her faith really matters to her. Mm -hmm. And like she really does believe and that manifests in really toxic ways, obviously. But you could tell there were certain moments, especially before all of the really sinister stuff happened, where you would see her in the context of being a part of the church. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is her thing. Mm -hmm. Like she cares about this and she gets a lot out of her faith. But again, I feel like there's just something there we don't know about her. Yeah. Perhaps it's just a product of time, like just not having enough time to flesh her out all the way. But yeah, she does end up being sort of two-dimensional. She's very well-rounded as a villain. Yeah. Like in terms of the bad parts of Bev. But yeah, like getting that extra context from Annie, you definitely want to know like, what has she done to pit everybody against her? Yeah, I had wondered, especially as we got Mildred more coherent and in her younger form, if she wouldn't have explained at some point, because it was obvious that Mildred knew her and has known her since probably she was a little child. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping that maybe Mildred would clue us in, but we never got it. And that's okay. Honestly, it was just like one thing that I was like, oh, I would have loved to have known. Yeah. Just a little more. Just a teeny bit more about why she is the way that she is. But 
I loved Annie's revelation being telling Bev, like, God loves everybody exactly the same. Yeah, and I love you're that. like you acting holier than thou for all these years does not make a lick of difference. Yeah. I think that that's like Annie's revelation is, and maybe she already knew this because she says she's wanted to tell her this for a really long time, but yeah. she realizes that it doesn't matter what Riley did. It doesn't matter what she's done. It doesn't matter what Bev's done. God loves everybody unconditionally exactly the same. And all of these things that Bev has done to try and like get in God's good graces, so to speak, doesn't matter. Right. And you can tell it rocks Bev. Oh, yeah. Like, to hear it so plainly put, she's like, oh. And we see her kind of struggle with that the rest yep. of this, the last episode. Also, Bev kind of took over everything in episode six. And now she's, like, continuing to take over everything. But it doesn't even matter that Annie reveals to her this, like, singular truth that, like, nothing that she does has mattered or has, like, put her in God's good graces. But yet she still continues to pervert the message. Like, even after oh, yeah. Annie kills herself and she's, like, drinking the blood and she still continues to pervert the message with Sturge. She's like, let's burn down everything. Yeah. Which makes no sense. No. <laughs> you know, ultimately, it seems like she is so driven by this idea of, like, there's going to be some kind of, like, revolution and God has chosen me and... Almost more so than Father Paul, like, I start to wonder with the reveal that um, the whole reason that Father Paul brought the angel back to the island was because of his love for Mildred. I wonder if those moments, and I'd love to go back and kind of examine these in another watch, those moments where we see Father Paul getting really, really riled up with religious fervor, the scenes prior to those where he's with Bev, I think some of that could be because of Bev's manipulation, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because without her, like, he, I think he would have just gone about his mission and... Yeah. Yeah. Um, we definitely see Bev pulling the strings at this yeah. point. She started in episode six, and now Father Paul is pretty much completely removed from the activities that are happening on the island. Like, you see him tell Sturge not to lock the doors in episode six, and he obviously is sad about the way things are going, but later in his confrontation with Bev and Bev, like, basically calling him Satan. Yeah. And calling him out and also calling Mildred the mother of whores. Yeah. And judging, like, at the beginning of the episode, she's like, who am I to judge? But still. And it's like, yeah. you really couldn't have let that slide. <laughs> she basically calls Father Paul out and they have a confrontation. And Father Paul's like, this is not what was supposed to happen. Look at all of these people. Look at all of the horrors that have happened. And this was not supposed to be the way that it went. And from that point on, Bev is pulling the strings the entire time. Yeah. She set the entire island on fire. Like, it's crazy. Like, she just absolutely has taken over. And she had done that in several of the other episodes where she's kind of, like, taken over what's happening. Yeah. And then in this one, she fully has kind of ascended to this point where she is the leader of all of these terrible things that are happening. It's tough. It's tough to watch, like, the message get perverted. Because although I'm not down with what Father Paul was selling in the first place, at first... What he wanted to do is, like, stop death, stop right. stop dying, stop suffering. He wanted to heal, at least initially. Yeah. 
but then it turned into like this weird quasi militant like army of god thing doing all of these good works in god's name but also like fighting in god's name which yeah. is kind of icky well it's icky and then bev like took that and just ran with it yeah oh yeah and father paul's like oh wait i just wanted people to not die anymore yeah bev's like burn it down yeah (laughs) it's crazy but also like it shows father paul's impotence when sarah dies which holy crap right like yeah (sighs) of all the people you wanted to survive i know i wanted her to be if anybody was gonna be the sole survivor i wanted it to be dr sarah (laughs) she's never gonna get her third date that's right (laughs) oh But, yeah, Bev Keen's like, burn all of the buildings except for the church and the rec center. Great idea. Make it only two targets instead of all of the targets. Yeah. She loves her rec center. God. She set up nice little cots for everybody to sleep on. Very organized. Yeah, right. As a Virgo, I admire that. (laughs) I bet Bev, nah, Bev Keen's probably a Libra or a Scorpio. I think she's a Scorpio. Chaotic. Yeah. Agent of chaos. Yeah. But, yeah. She's like, burn down everything except for the church and the rec center. And that's where we'll have our sanctuary. And then we also get this moment where we see her excluding people who have been turned against their will, excluding them from sanctuary. Serge is like, he was always really nice to me. And she's like, he never took communion once. You weren't supposed to turn anybody if they, you know, if they didn't come to mass or whatever. And Serge is just a very kind person. He doesn't have, like, all of these uh, religious strings tied to him. He doesn't have an agenda in the same way that she does. He's just like, this person was nice, and I didn't want to kill him, so I turned him, and I thought maybe we would give him shelter. And she's like, nope, he was not of our religion, so he doesn't get to come. Yeah. And it's really heartbreaking because Sturge is like, okay, well, I guess you're just going to have to go watch the sunrise. And he's like, I killed my wife and my yeah. son. And he falls to the ground weeping. And Father Paul's like, this is not right. Yeah. If it's not open for everybody, then it has nothing to do with God. Powerful scene. And then he walks into the church and Sarah is there dousing the church in gas. Yeah. At first they're like staring each other in the eye. You're like, oh my God, it's going to be a showdown. And then Father Paul says, good. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, (laughs) like uh, Father Paul has realized, I think, at this point that everything was for nothing. Right. Like he's completely botched this entire operation, both himself and Bev Keen. Like one person should not have all of this power. And he's like, good, good, burn it down. And he tells her, like, go back through the rectory. And he's clearly about to knock a candle over. And then Sarah gets shot. I know. Damn it. (laughs) Made me so sad. Yeah. And he also says really, like, right before he's about to knock the candle over, your mom and I are so proud of you. I wish that you had known. Yeah. And I wish that we had gotten to know one another. And Sarah's just like, me too, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I can't really absorb this information right now. The entire island's on fire, but uh, we'll catch up over coffee later. (laughs) There are vampires literally everywhere. Yeah. Okay, bye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then she gets shot. Sturge shoots her. I don't think Sturge was doing it because he hated Sarah. No, I don't think so. He was just like out of self-preservation was like, oh, she's attacking Father Pruitt. I need to intervene. Right. 
because he couldn't see Father Paul's hand on the candle. Yeah. So that was tough. And Mildred and Father Paul try to save Sarah and she rejects it. Yeah. And it's like literally all of this was for nothing. Yeah. All of Father Paul's actions out the window. Yeah. Which I love, which gets into the whole consent thing. It's so rare that we get to see a moment where somebody actively rejects like the sort of gift of vampirism or eternal life. Rare is the moment where somebody is asked if they want it in the first place. But even rarer is the moment where somebody is actively rejecting eternal life. Yeah. And um, we can totally crack into the consent thing now. It's something where Father Paul didn't consent to being fed from. But he indicates that he's able to sort of communicate with the angel at the time in the cave that that is what he wanted or that his belief that the angel, if it is an angel or vampire or whatever, his belief that it was an angel is what allowed him to consent to that. So that, okay, cool. We've got the consent. Yeah. But then after that, it's just like issue after issue, like, Riley is the first one after that, and Riley, obviously, no consent there. If he had the opportunity, I'm sure he would have said no, clearly. Yeah. Later, he self-immolates in order to prevent this from happening to anybody else. It's hard when we talk about vampires because they're romanticized so often. Yeah. Because we're like, vampires are sexy, and they're supposed to appear that way, alluring and the temptation of living forever because... Most of the time, especially as we age, people are like, well, who wouldn't want to live forever? Yeah. But we're really contending with that. Like Annie Flynn says that later on when she reunites with Ed, both of whom have not fed. They stay, you know, without feeding the entire time. They say, like, it is a compulsion. Like, I feel that I want to eat so bad, but I'm not going to because that's just going to turn us into animals. And another conversation that we had recently, like the idea that instead of falling into the same traps, you're sticking to your values and you say, no, I will not do that. No matter if it means that I will die in just a few minutes, I will not do that. I will not become an animal. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, too, if in that moment they had new appreciation and empathy for Riley, you know, for that idea of you have this physical need and compulsion to consume something and just how hard it is to resist that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that was sort of a reckoning for them was another revelation. Like now we have a newfound understanding of our son and his struggle. And now maybe we feel sorry for either how hard we were on him or not supporting him in the ways that he needed, even though the eventuality that happened to him wasn't his fault, had nothing to do with him. But maybe also in their interactions with Joe Colley, it sort of changed the way that they felt about that. Turning people who are actively against addicts into addicts is certainly an interesting parallel. Definitely. And revelatory as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I thought that the Flynn's refusing to drink, even though they were both acknowledging that the hunger was there. and But they were like, no, we will not do that. Even though it's painful to us, even though we know what's going to happen. We're not going to do it. Plus, there's like nobody left to drink. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah. um, At that point. So one of the interesting things that I noticed this time around when I was watching is when Warren and Lisa kind of run away. One of the places of safety, one of the last places of safety is Joe Colley's trailer. 
Yeah. With his gun. Yeah. That Lisa spotted on the wall prior. What a nice way to bring Joe Colley back into the conversation. Definitely. And to, like, make his home a safe place. Because who's going to go there? Exactly. There's nobody there. Yeah. So um, making his home a safe place, making Lisa's, I mean, really ability to survive and to continue surviving hinge on Joe Colley having the very thing that put her in a wheelchair. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, too, that... In a moment of peril, that's where she could seek refuge. It was not with her parents. It was not in the church. It was in this place that was associated with this person that seemed to be, based on prior speeches, ever present in her mind, but with a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. And that she was able to almost transform that and make it not necessarily positive, but at least use that ever presence to her advantage, to Mm -hmm. her survival. Totally. And I love the moment that she and Warren have right outside before they run off towards the, what do they call it? The uppers? The place where he and his friends sneak off in the first episode. I think they call it the uppers or something. That might actually be a Stephen King term. (laughs) Like some of the dairy... I'll have to look I, it see, up. <laughs> you said Stephen King term, and I instantly was like, the Langoliers? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but they have this moment, which is their revelation, where Lisa's like, okay, we're going to get to the canoe, and we're going to be okay. And Warren says, you think we're going to make it? And she says, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you and I are going to be okay. And I was like, that is such a beautiful, like, her recognizing that It doesn't matter whether or not they make it or they survive this. Like, the important part is they are going to be okay. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, like, I actually with a previous therapist had talked about this. One of the things that can help wind you down from having, like, really incredible anxiety is understanding that everything will be okay because it has to be. No matter, like, no matter what happens everything is going to level out again because it has to. Even if things are going really poorly in your life, even if you're terminally ill, everything will be okay because it has to. Yeah, and that okay can mean different things at different times and in different contexts, but like okay is a good baseline to start from. Yes, yep, yep. So I thought that that was a cool revelation for Lisa and Warren to have, for her to impart to Warren like, we'll be okay. Yeah, even if we both die, we'll be okay. So, Aaron. Yeah. So, Aaron doesn't necessarily start out as being a main character in this show, but I want to make the argument that she absolutely becomes almost the main character towards the end of the show based off of how her character ends up. Yeah, I would agree. And sort of the circle that she completes towards the end because she... Does help get the kids to safety, although they have to split up. She helps put a bunch of gasoline everywhere in the rec center, which allows Ali in a stunning turn oh, of... beautiful. <laughs> yes. So we also see Sheriff Hassan experiencing some overt racism yep. in this episode, which it's all been sort of not subtle, but like underhanded yeah. in prior episodes where it's like not... They're not saying the quiet part out loud. Everybody is scared of him or fear him because of both his religion and the fact that he's a brown person on the island that maybe didn't grow up there. And in this episode, 
we finally see that overt racism. Warren's friend, who's also an altar boy, calls him the R word. Bev Keen says that he has dirty blood, which I think is just horrible. Yeah. Just bone chilling to think that she... Like, not only is she prejudiced against him because of his religion, which is what we see, right? you know, prior, we see her very clearly ostracize him because he's not Catholic. But now it's like, oh, no, this is not simply. Yeah. This is all the way racist. Yeah. Yeah. You're not just like Islamophobic, like culturally Islamophobic. You're like straight up like a whole level of racism that, yeah. Yeah. She's not just... Yeah, it's awful, but we see Ali hear her disparage his dad, who, although Ali made a different choice than what his dad wanted, and it was pretty, you know, heartbreaking to see that, on the other hand, we can still see that there's care and love there. Absolutely. Even though he's made a different choice than his dad, he didn't want to hurt him. No, and it seems like every choice he's made counter to his dad's wishes, he wants his dad to come along and experience. Like when he talks about going to Easter Vigil, he's like, if there's going to be a miracle, I want you to be there with me. Yeah, and so Ali decides to burn down the rec center. So kind of an alley-oop because Erin tries to do it herself and the angel attacks her. Yeah. Ali burns down the rec center, leaving the large number of vampires with nowhere to go. So Erin is being attacked by the angel. She's being drained. And during that time, she stabs the angel in the wings so that the the angel can't fly very well. And in these last moments before her death, she is thinking back to the conversation on the couch with Riley about what happens when you die. And she sort of made this like about face where initially when she's having the conversation with Riley, she's speaking only for her daughter that she had lost. And this time she sort of mashes her beliefs and Riley's beliefs that are a little bit less spiritual. She's combining the two and realizing that that is God. Yeah. Like, realizing that you are a part of a greater system and that when you return to that system, it's so that later other things can come from Uh you, basically. And that's her revelation, is that it was never about her. It was never about her daughter. It was always about everybody. Yeah. And so, like, her last kind of selfless act of sacrificing herself because there's a time when the angel like comes up from eating and understands that she's you know making holes in Uh its wings and she guides the angel's head back to her neck yeah to continue distracting it not only is she now allowed to disable the angel from flying very well but also she is buying everybody else time yeah both to not get attacked because Theoretically, after her, it's Sheriff Hassan and Warren and Lisa. Right, yeah. They're all they're out on the boat. The angel could, without the damage, sufficient damage to its wings, could swoop down like a bird of prey and just pluck one of them exactly. out of the boat. So that's her revelation is like, none of this was about me. It was always about everybody else the entire time. And she does mention earlier in the episode when they're still in her home that there's no greater love than protecting people that you've never even met. Exactly. Which kind of echoes what she was talking about with her daughter in that episode when she was talking to Riley. So her revelation, 
very touching. Yeah, it was a really beautiful scene. Uh, I like that we went back to that conversation that was so pivotal in the middle of the series mm-hmm. and got it kind of reframed with new knowledge. One of the last things I want to touch on for this episode before we kind of do like a overall redress of the series is revelation. So most of the main characters in the series get some sort of revelation passed along to them in this final episode. And we also see Sheriff Hassan and Ali praying one last time before the sun comes up. Yeah. Ali dies. Sheriff Hassan presumably dies. We see him collapse. We see him collapse. Then we see Ali put his hand on his father so that they essentially burn together. Yeah. So there's that. We see the revelation of Bev being a coward. Yeah. When in her last moments, she's trying to dig a hole for herself. Yep. And everybody else singing a hymn. As (laughs) As <laughs> uh, what were they singing? Oh, nearer my God to Thee. Yeah, so they're singing nearer my God to Thee, and they're in perfect harmony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna say it. In a moment of distress, when the world is literally burning around you, I don't think you're gonna like divide into parts. And you never know. Camp, maybe whatnot. maybe they've uh, they've competed in church chorus. Uh, competitions. <laughs> they're like, this is one last try. We just got to give it our all, guys. <laughs> so we see the inevitable fate of everybody. You know, they're all burning. And then we see Lisa and Warren in the canoe. And they've seen the vampire kind of, or the angel fly away. So they're not sure whether or not the vampire has, or the angel has survived. So the revelation I think that's bestowed upon Lisa in this episode is it becomes a miracle again that she can't feel her legs. Yeah. She smiles at the end because it's a miracle that she no longer feels her legs because that means that the angel is gone. Yep. What a way to polish off the series because Lisa's miracle was the first one that we saw in the entire season. And the undoing of her miracle is a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to talk about that and then in the larger context of the series of what makes a miracle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm really excited about Nope, but one of the things that they say in the Nope trailer is, what do you call a bad miracle? Right. Right. And this series is sort of a like perfect example of a bad miracle. Yeah. That was one of the things that I thought like in terms of overall, you know, theme of this series, what is the nature of a miracle? What is a miracle if it means that it's not good for everybody? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we kind of talked about this a little bit in a prior episode in the context of Lisa specifically and her disability. I like that they ended it with her being enough, you know, that she she survived and she was in she's enough as a person who can't use their legs, you know. She has survived this and she, you know, we don't get any context as to whether they get off that canoe or not. But, you know, in and I think most viewers' minds, they're going to say, yeah, and Lisa goes on to live a happy and fulfilled and, you know, she survives and thrives. I think the whole question of Lisa specifically, like what is a miracle when we talk about disability is really complicated and interesting. Like, the assumption on the part of able-bodied people that's just steeped in ableism that for many people a miracle would be life without disability is just that it's ableist you know Mm -hmm. but i think it's an easy trap to fall into 
so when we think about miracles, not only do should we think about like what's good for everybody, but like is the miracle that I would want for myself, you know, should I assume that it's the same miracle that you would want? Or mm-hmm. should I assume that the miracle that I want for you is actually the miracle that you want for yourself? Yeah, exactly. Maybe somebody with a disability would rather have their mom not have cancer. Right. Or maybe solve their money problems outside of their disability. So, And also, I like that Lisa ended up with a person who cared greatly for her before. Yep. Like, before the miracle. Yes. Like, he... I think them not spending a lot of time together was more by proxy of her mom, like her mom and dad being helicopter parents, and less that Warren was not interested. He was clearly interested. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, he, from the very beginning, you see Warren seeing Lisa and not just accepting her for who she is, but wanting to be with her. Yes. For who she is. And I think Warren is also happy that Lisa is... Once again, the person that he has grown up with yeah. and has grown fond of and was attracted to prior yep. to Father Pruitt coming and meddling on the island. It's a really good start and end to the series to see Lisa accept herself and no longer understand that that's not who she is. Yeah. That being able to walk is not defining to her yeah her ability to walk or not is not the totality of who she is and really her strength throughout this series as we've seen it evolve her strength has nothing to do with her ability to walk or not her strength has to do with her inner fortitude and her perception like she's very perceptive as Mm -hmm. a young person oh yeah Uh, and her ability to in times of great need to take the lead and to be a leader to others. Like, I would say, like, that's her miracle was her kind of finding her strength in her voice. Yeah, totally. One of the other kind of, like, overarching things I wanted to talk about is one of the things that we mentioned earlier when we were covering, like, episode four, episode five, is the terrible things that we do in the name of religion. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that you mentioned was that you thought maybe the angel was actually a demon. Yeah. And I hadn't even thought about that. My perspective from the show is the terrible things that we allow ourselves to think and allow ourselves to be witness to in the name of religion and don't stop. Oh, yeah. And the people who are on the fringes of this and the people who inevitably do stop are Dr. Sarah, who is not religious. Yep. Sheriff Hassan, who is a Muslim. A practicing Muslim, like we see him practice on the island. Mildred, who has sort of stepped away from her faith. And Erin, who, while religious, it does seem as though she's kind of struggling with, like, falling back in line. And Riley, of course, yeah. who is atheist now. So the people who really fight hard against this, at least initially, are those who are not Catholic, And then we see those who are sort of like break off and start to understand like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how I see my religion or how I see myself, like the Flynn's. But then we also see people who kind of double down like the mayor and, and Dolly. Yeah. The mayor and Dolly who kill multiple people during their hunger. And it does seem like the mayor changed a few people, which Bev says that they weren't supposed to do except in special situations. 
But yeah, the mayor and his wife just kind of go like full bore. And then when they see Bev Keen shoot Sheriff Hassan, they're like, we should have been looking for Lisa. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. Like we got wrapped up in this religious fervor and thinking that we were doing the right thing. And where is our daughter? Right. Right. Like all of the things that you ignore and stop thinking about or don't make a priority because you're letting religion tell you yes or no or letting a false prophet tell you that these are the ways that you need to interpret it. Yeah. And steeped in like very arbitrary rules. It it goes to sort of what I was saying in a prior episode about like you can read the Bible as many different things. Like you can read it very, very literally. And I would argue therein lies the path to madness. Um <laughs> You can read it as a set of rules, or you can read it and distill, read it more like people read literature. You can read it and then distill from it a message. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot of the characters taking this turn of, rather than following these strict rules, following things to sort of the letter of the law, in air quotes, rather getting to the heart of what is the actual message you know what is the core message of christianity which i think aaron sums up which is like there's no greater love than to give your life you know for somebody you don't know or you know to to care for others that sort of a thing and that's sort of the dichotomy between bev and everybody else who's sort of awakening to this oh wait bev's over here following the rules and she sounds like a maniac and she's doing things that we just fundamentally are disagreeing with when really what we ought to be doing is caring for people. Right. Like, oh, that's the core of our faith, not all the stuff Bev's saying. And we've wasted time. Like, it's yeah, it's precious too late. time. Yeah. It's too late for us to be able to undo all of the bad that we've done. Yep. And Bev never getting that message. No, no. <laughs> she Bev never is, she, yeah. She never, she never quite makes it to that point. No. Like, her self-preservation instinct is too high. And I think she's... She's made a career of being this person, being this person who can spout scripture and, you know, kind of change any situation or change anything into what exactly she wants it to be by throwing scripture at it, even out of context, even though it didn't necessarily mean what she wanted it to. And people just being like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and falling in line. And then she finds out that it didn't matter. Yeah. None of that mattered. Well, it's like, who is Bev Keen if she is unable to be holier than thou? You know, she is no one. We never see her embodying that love and care that we Mm -hmm. see the other characters sort of coming to in this episode. Bev is nothing without this artifice of rules and, and doctrine to uphold and to hold over others. Yeah. Woof. Overall, what did you think of the series? I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I like the way that it unfolded because it kept me guessing. I was even even from like the last episode to this episode in the span of the hour it took us to record <laughs> last episode and get into episode seven. I was like, how are they going to end this? You know, I like that with every episode we watched. And that to me also speaks with spacing them out a little more. It was really fun in between us watching them to kind of be like, where in the heck are they going to take <laughs> this story from here? Or how are they going to get this resolved? Or will it resolve? You know, or will they leave it open ended? Which I like that there was a pretty, 
save for like the question of whether the angel actually burnt up in the sun or not. Mm-hmm. There was a pretty clear resolution to the story, which I like. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. This is my second watch through. And the first time I didn't quite pay close attention. I binged it, but it was while I was working. So I didn't quite pay attention. It's certainly a series that you can find new things probably every time you watch it. Yeah. Which is good. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I like that it's short. I don't think that they wasted any time. I think that the characters are very relatable. Mike Flanagan, he has a keen sense of how to make a person like a real person. Yeah. Although maybe they don't talk like real people. Yeah. So having not watched any other Mike Flanagan stuff, I already... Just from watching this, this is just something I've always done. I can pick up like dialogue patterns because I like writing dialogue. That's one of my favorite things when I write stuff is to write dialogue. I think I've got his down already. Yeah. And I'll be eager to see if I'm right like when I watch any of his other series. But I think I've already got them, especially I hear them the most in Aaron and Riley. Yeah. In the way that they're written. I hear it in Father Paul. His his delivery is like, watching it a second time, it became more and more obvious to me. And I was like, okay, that's like such small potatoes, though, in terms of like my love for this series. Oh, yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's just something, something that I've noticed. And honestly, like with a lot of creators, like a lot of like really good creators, you can kind of pick that up. I'm like, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, It's just, I'm curious now because definitely by this point. I was like, oh, yeah, I can hear it. Yeah. I mean, why watch a TV show if all the people talk like real people? Because yeah, especially in this series, it probably would have been a lot less interesting Uh to hear folks talk the way that normal folks actually talk. So it's not uh, necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that I definitely noticed the second time time around. I have a lot of love for his other series, but he also kind of has a a pattern when it comes to scares. Okay. We have a tendency to do like a very touching, somber moment. (laughs) That gets interrupted by something scary. Yes. And I can tell you, even the second watch through, I probably threw a couple of things (laughs) while we were watching this. Uh, It scared me every time, which is a good thing. Yeah. But we cover horror here. On Attack of the Final Girls. Would you say that this is a horror story? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yes, I would. I would. Uh, It takes a while to get to the actual horror, and that's okay. You Mm -hmm. know, it's definitely more of a, you know, it's not a slasher, Mm -hmm. and that's totally okay. But these last two episodes... The slaughter, the frenzied slaughter in the church, uh, I was commenting in episode seven how I loved that the vampires were very like 30 Days of Night-esque. They were very, you know, frenzied. And yet there were other scenes that were these beautiful nods to like Romero, where you had all of the zombies or zombies, see, you had all of the, <laughs> uh, the people that had been turned into vampires on the island just sort of walking around, shambling around, unsure of where to go or what to do. And they felt like zombies, like Mm -hmm. slow moving zombies. Certainly good horror makes us examine ourselves, our reactions, our preconceived notions, our patterns, our habits in a horror context, but it allows us to look at ourselves. And yeah, this does this 
a thousand times over. So yes, I would absolutely say that, that this is horror. That is a criticism that I've seen of this is that folks have kind of called it a religious drama with horror elements, which <laughs> religious drama, maybe the first two or three episodes, I could sure. see that like starting out. But I would say it is a horror because it is a religious yeah, drama. Like, absolutely. That is part of the horror of the entire series is what we do to justify what we do in service of our faith, whatever we interpret that to be, and also the things that we justify because of it. Yeah. I would say that that's part of it. Yeah. The vampires are not the, I mean. They're like Bev, a tool. Yeah, they're they're a tool. They are horrific. But like Bev Keen and her behavior is her behavior that we see people do all the time. Mm-hmm. The horrors that people in this country are committing right now in the name of their faith is horrific yeah and that can be horror too not all horror has to be supernatural or over the top totally it's i mean the vampire is simply a a storytelling tool yeah for us to examine grief and uh the things that we hold over others heads um misunderstanding hard-heartedness um xenophobia and racism yep um ableism so the vampire is just a tool for us to explore those topics in a way that is supernatural. So it really can cut to the heart of those things. Yeah. Um, And it makes the stakes higher. Yeah, for sure. Another criticism is the um, makeup, the old age makeup. People were very early on able to see that some of the characters were not as old as their makeup. Like Mildred specifically, that was a criticism, but I honestly think it's probably because of consistency. It's just hard to make somebody look exactly the same every single time. That's so interesting because I feel like, I don't know. I I feel like that would take multiple watches to pick up on. Mm -hmm. Like I could probably go back and watch it now and be like, oh, okay. But like I question sometimes criticisms like that where I'm like, and maybe that's, a sign that like people weren't as invested in the story but like Mm -hmm. were you so uninvested in the story that you're sitting there laser eye critiquing the makeup yeah because i was not yeah definitely no no i i thought it was good i mean and i love practical effects so i appreciate that they didn't de-age or age with cgi yeah so i that was definitely not a problem that i had with it and i especially thought that the flins looked really good yeah um and also like they had to age her like 50 years so mildred (laughs) so yeah um cut him a break it's uh 50 years and like (laughs) maybe you would notice that knowing that she is younger like Maybe the criticism wasn't there until, like, she is younger, and then you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's... And you sort of seen, like, the undoing of her age. Yeah. Like, maybe that's why, but, yeah, that's really small potatoes. Yeah. And it didn't take me out of it at all, because the creature is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. So, one last question. Do you think that Father Paul, through the end, really thought that it was an angel? Yes. You do? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I don't think he was capable of thinking it was anything else. Mm -hmm. I don't think he ever considered that it was anything other than an angel. 
I think that when things went wrong and he started to realize it, I think it had more to do with his own hubris. Mm -hmm. Like you could hear him kind of blaming himself. Like I was given this gift and I should have never wanted more, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, We never sort of feel him reflecting like, oh, maybe this wasn't an angel. Maybe this is the devil's work or anything like that. I mean, really other than a couple of like, references from Bev Keen, Satan is not brought up a whole lot in this, which I find just fascinating because mm-hmm. that's where I went. First thing I was like, yep, yeah, it's the devil. Totally the devil. Yeah. But no, I don't think so. I think Father Paul thought it was an angel the entire time, but realized that he was asking too much out of his own humanity. He was wanting too much that, you know, he was, he was asking too much of God. And because humans have free will this gift from god got tainted or messed up or whatever that he never he as a human never should have made the choice to bring this to the island he should have been satisfied with the gift that he was given and gone from there but his his human love for this human person which is steeped in sin anyway because he's supposed to be a priest Mm -hmm. yeah i don't i don't think he ever thought it was anything other than an angel it seems like he placed the blame squarely on himself yeah, I definitely think that he stayed with that. I think others probably kenned on to it like yeah. afterwards, but he was like, nope, that's I'm just going to stick with this because yeah. anything else is going to break my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think he was capable of thinking it was anything but an angel Yeah, and blaming anything but himself. Well, that's the end of our bonus episodes oh for this goodness. one. Do you want to give our listeners a teaser or yeah we can give folks a teaser uh we kind of did uh i think it will be out by the time you hear this but we kind of did tease on our appearance on uh, the ghoul friends podcast what is going to be next for us in terms of bonus material so we'll take a little mini baby break uh just to work on our source material and get all studied up for this next one but we're gonna dive into the world of Anne rice coming up next i'm so excited praise be (laughs) our our queen yeah uh yeah we'll be diving into a lot of Anne rice material for bonus episodes so this will be a little different than midnight mass the time off is just time off of bonus content you're still going to get a movie every other week but part of what we have to do is figure out kind of how we're dividing up the content Mm -hmm. because if you know Anne rice it's dense and there's a lot (laughs) so look for that coming to your feeds soon ish we'll keep you posted on the movie episodes when exactly to expect that but uh get ready do some rereads we'll give you a heads up in case you want to uh read along with us or or kind of join us in that totally yeah i'm really excited i am too thanks for listening to attack of the final girls find us online at attack of the final girls.com We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.